0: Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Earlier this year, we told you that we've been remastering some of our older episodes to make the audio a little bit cleaner. You know, when you know
1: better, you do better.
0: We decided to remaster and revisit the life of Clara Barton.
1: This episode is dedicated to all of the nurses from Wesley Hospital in Wichita who helped my mother, especially Roxanne. Frank, Night Matt, Gigi, and Marshall. Special thanks from the bottom of my heart to Matt, who we called Day Matt, who was there with us at the end of her journey, and to my mother, Janice Danders, my first friend, my best friend. I miss you already. I love you. And here's your 30-second summary.
0: A timid little girl born in pre-Civil War New England transcends her timidity to become a teacher, a government worker, a war nurse, a humanitarian, establishes the American Red Cross, and is still known today as the Angel of the
1: Battlefield. The
0: The end. End.
1: Let's talk about Clara Barton. First, let's place her in history. The
0: first edition of the Saturday Evening Post is published, and it will be published until 1969. Uh, Missouri, a state very near and dear to our hearts, is admitted as the 24th state. Peru declares independence from Spain, and Greece gains independence from Turkey. Napoleon Bonaparte dies. James Monroe is sworn in as his second term as president. And on Christmas Day, 1821, Clara Harlow Barton was born. We're talking about Clara Barton. She was born Clarissa. This is another Clara that was a Clarissa I know. People.
1: Well, she was kind of a big surprise, I think, in this family since her nearest sister was 10. So she's the the youngest of five. So really, instead of any playmates at all, she had basically six parents. Right. So that was good. And they did help her, you know, in her education. Well, all of these sticks' parents took her on as a project in their area of expertise, right. which was kind of interesting. They referred to her as "baby," mm-hmm. which is pretty cute. Just it like is. Queen Victoria's it daughter is. Beatrice was "baby" to the family. Of course, they petted her sick. Seriously, they gave her candy. Everybody gave her candy. Everybody gave her cookies. Well, so you know, she's the baby. That's but what they, you do. Yeah. So, not only did they stuff her. Stomach full of stuff. Mm-hmm. They stuffed her head full of stuff. Her brother, Stephen, was a noted mathematician. And that was his area of expertise. And so he taught her fractions even before she was five. So her brother David was like a wild man. He was nature man. Mm-hmm. He was out there and he, he did this horrible thing. She's five years old and yep. he wanted to teach her to ride a horse. And they had this whole herd of wild colts. Mm-hmm. And so, he decided, okay, I'm going to teach you how to ride. And he picked her up by the back of the dress and put her on a wild colt and told her, okay, hold on to the mane." And he hopped on another one, and they rode with the herd as they ran around. Seriously, that would be so cool. I do not believe in spanking, but if my (laughs) 17-year-old son put my 5-year-old daughter on the back of a wild horse in the middle of stamping other wild horses, there would be a wallopin'. I am shocked that we're so different on this one. I'd be like, oh, that would be so cool, riding with the ponies. Well, my maternal no. grandma was also put in a similar situation by her sisters and brothers. They used to put her in quicksand, okay that's bad. and then see how fast they could get her back out. <laughs> okay. so brothers, perhaps of the earlier generations, maybe, <laughs> where would that? Like, they didn't have anything to get their other aggressions out on, so they
0: just played with their siblings. Oh my cool. goodness. Awesome. But, but
1: you know what? Clara Barton said that those riding lessons served her well because later in the mm-hmm. war, when she had to get out for fear of her life or for fear of capture, yeah. the generals were always amazed that she would just sit astride and ride a horse that didn't have a saddle or anything. She could get out of danger. And those early riding lessons, she said, were probably the best lessons she could have had. So go David. <laughs> Her father
0: Stephen was a former soldier and a farmer and a horse breeder and a politician. I mean he was a uh, all- around, do renaissance man yeah kind
1: of it's funny because he fought on the frontier of ohio uh-huh. and his main <laughs> battle was a battle outside of toledo so you're not thinking of toledo yeah. as the hotbed of the of the indian war battlefields but you know it was battle is battle that's, is the, battle. It's, that's yeah. the frontier at the yeah, time that's right that's so interesting he was a very good storyteller mm-hmm. he could make things come alive and He had her memorize all the ranks of the army, all the divisions and the stripes that you see, Mm -hmm. and also the president and the cabinet and all the main members of the government. Could your five-year-old do that even Uh, now?
0: I could get some. My six-year-old could not. (laughs) He could do the president. Oh, there you go. Maybe the governor. That's it. Yeah, pretty much.
1: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but she seriously learned how to salute and what rank count ranked uh-huh. what. And they used to play these elaborate war games with little red grains of corn on one side and little um, yellow grains of corn on the other side. I mean, I'm talking like a game of risk. They would take over the uh-huh. living room, their, their positions and their battles and their strategies and moving of troops. And seriously, I think she was better fitted for a war situation than any woman possibly oh, could absolutely. be. And probably most men. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Just she,
0: true. Yeah, even though she was baby, she certainly wasn't babied as far as the way that they talked to her and the things that she learned. Now, the
1: female contribution to her education was far more traditional. One of her sisters taught her to read. Right. Another teacher taught her geography. Mm-hmm. And her mother taught her practical things, which also came very handy. Yes. Sewing, uh, knitting did not take, I will tell you. She just <laughs> could not knit. That was one of the things. Can you knit? I could, um, I could go, I can crochet, but only in a straight line forever. Uh, I can't connect the rows. (laughs) (laughs) So if you need a really, really, really long one row scarf that you want to wind around 200 times, I'm your man for that.
0: Great. No good. Her mom was Sarah Stone Barton, and she was actually, things I had read that she was kind of a free thinker. She, I mean, she had to be to tolerate the, What was going on with her, you know, okay, let her
1: ride the ponies. (laughs) Oh, yeah, and it's so funny because she used to regard this whole situation with this great amusement, like shaking her head. You kids are just, what are you doing to your sister or whatever? And she was known to remark after Clara Barton was older that she was quite surprised she turned out well with all that chaos going on. (laughs) Some of those
0: things, I'm surprised she turned out at
1: all. (laughs) I'm kind of, I'm laughing because it's like, that's got to be a fifth child phenomenon. Maybe. She was so bashful, Mm -hmm. but simultaneously so daring. Like the (laughs) daring do of riding the logs. There's a saw. At the end of the log that you're sitting on. (laughs) And you're still riding it. Yeah. You're crossing this rickety, bouncy, bendy log across a rushing stream full of other logs. Fine. That's awesome. We're riding horses with no saddles, but people try to talk to you, and there's nothing. Shut down. It's a very interesting personality. I
0: think it's kind of (laughs) cool. No, it But she wasn't cheery. I don't think... I wouldn't mm-hmm. have anything that I looked at. It wasn't, she was a cheery kid. She wasn't like happy go lucky.
1: No, she was very serious and she yeah. did love school. She loved to learn things. She was known to calmly say to her teacher, who tried to get her to spell words like cat and hat, she said, No, no, I spell in artichoke. <laughs> Which meant, like, we're talking several chapters back yes. on more appropriate lists for me artichoke. artichoke. So, yeah, she was very serious and very, um, very bookish, but a painter came to the house one day. Mm-hmm. And this isn't like today where you go to the Benjamin Moore store and you buy the paint. This guy had to mix everything. It was basically like being a chemist. Right. You had to make your putty. You had to make your whitewash. You had to do everything yourself, grind your paints. And Clara Barton, at eight, was allowed to follow this man around. And he must have had kids at home or something because he was patient. He made her an apron so she wouldn't get her dress dirty. And weeks went by and he taught her everything he knew about his craft. And at the end, um, she varnished all the dining room chairs. And her mother was surprised and pleased and couldn't find fault with any of it. This is like homeschooling at its finest. It's kind of neat.
0: I Yeah. Isn't that the whole idea behind homeschooling is that you take all these things that you can learn in this world? And I, I don't homeschool. But I do admire those who do it well. Well, the self
1: sufficiency of the people of this time are kind. It's kind of amazing, and that was even to the point of community self sufficiency. Mm -hmm. If somebody needed to build a big barn, right? uh, You know, or anything, the neighbors would gather and all help out. Everyone would come to help from far and wide, knowing that if they, in turn, needed something done of this nature, harvest time, for example, um, people would come to help them too.
0: And it was during one of those occasions that her brother David fell from a roof. And Clara, who was only 11 at the time, her role was to
1: nurse him back to health. While David,
0: who had taught her all that crazy stuff, needed some help. Yeah,
1: David was known as the daredevil of the neighborhood. And so when you raise that center ridge pole, you Mm -hmm. need a guy to ride it, basically, to hook it to the sides. And, of course... Everyone points to him. Yeah. He's the guy that David'll do it. David'll do it, and David did want to do it, and he fell from so high in the air, and he—it's—I can't explain because he, he landed on his feet, but I think the jolt jolt gave him a concussion right. or something. So anyway, um, he was sick for two years, and she was by
0: his side she, pretty much the whole time.
1: Yeah, and um, you know how much we love these doctors of the time. What did they do? It was leeches. It was this and that. It was all bleeding. All this treatment that can't have helped. Clara Barton refers to it as allopathic medicine, which I've learned is a pejorative term. That kind of like half superstitious, Mm -hmm. half, oh, the blood's too thick. Let's take some out. That kind of thing, which she really thought was crackle. <laughs> but she actually did the crapo wacko crapo crapo wacko medicine. So she had to do all that stuff, and poor David relied on her. He would not have her go, and she stayed for two years. And in that time, she did not grow an inch. Mm. She gained only one pound. She stayed very small. She hadn't done any growing of her own. Hadn't been exercising, nothing. It just tells you what she was doing to take care of him, which would be mm-hmm. everything. And it's interesting that she said that she'd given David poison enough to kill him seven times over as she intended to do it, but it was under the doctor's orders. Oh. I know, she felt, she felt bad about that because this new doctor came to town and everyone called him Steam Doctors, and they mm-hmm. believed it's not the blood. It has nothing to do with the blood. It's the pores. You must be... Deemed back to health as the poison comes out of your pores. And here's the thing. David snapped back almost immediately. And it's my theory is it's not the steam. It's the laying off of the allopathic medicine, which is what cured him. Seriously, he's gone two weeks and he's back. He could have been back a long time ago.
0: Yeah. Along those same lines, there is another pseudoscience that came along about the time, and that's phrenology. So here is teenage Clara Barton, and her parents are wondering what to do with her she's already been to work with her brother Stephen at his mill Um, she's been tutoring around town because she did go to school Um, she did get a you know as formal of an education at that age as she could help nurse people not only David but others during a smallpox epidemic but she doesn't really have any direction in life and she's still very quiet and, and, and shy around people and so Her parents take her to a phrenologist for a consultation, which I would think would be kind of, I mean, for the times, modern. Oh, let's go see. Well, it
1: was a respectable science of the day. In fact, they didn't have to take her anywhere because he was a house guest. There's always this one house where any visiting dignitary comes to board, you know, to stay. And this happened to be their house. It was just like where one goes if you're a dignitary. Phrenology cracks me the heck up. I will post a map. Yes. Oh, I love the map. It yeah, looks I'll post so, the map. it
0: looks so scientific.
1: It what? has things like benevolence. It has things like weight. All based on the lumps in your head. Maybe I need to hit myself in the head. And That's I'm right. Starting...
0: You know, and I'm reading about that. and I'm actually like touching my scalp, going, "Oh, I wonder where the lumps are."
1: I love it. It has a it has one marked order, and honestly, it's right to the side of your um of your eye a little bit. And I'm like feeling around. I'm like, I have a concave situation. I know. Like, I, there's like a divot there. On me. Like, I'm, like that explains We're a lot. <laughs> Phrenology explains a lot.
0: So the phrenologist tells her
1: parents, "I think she would be a very good teacher." He also says she will never assert herself for herself, but for others, she will be fearless. Wow, I get chills. (laughs) Isn't that kind of funny? And it's funny, she never did assert herself for herself. Uh -uh. She would go without gloves rather than ask for some. But even as a child, she would never, even though these people loved her and were very nice to her, she didn't ask. mm -mm, No. Nothing. Nope. In contrast to the children of today, who ask for Pokemon cards <laughs> in 30-minute intervals yeah, during all waking
0: hours. Well, they realize it's a quantity issue. If they ask for 10 things, they'll get two. Oh.
1: Yeah. Clever. All right. Well, Clara basically took from this the philosophy of know what thyself, and she vowed to play on her strengths from uh-huh. then on. And I think everyone, that's kind of inspiring alone. You could learn from, everyone needs to play to their strengths. I agree. I think
0: that's a as, a as a young woman... For her to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Well, she was—I mean,
1: she was wicked smart. There's she was no question about it. So she went to teach at seventeen. She had her very first school. Forty kids, aged four to eighteen, some of whom were a lot bigger than her. No mm-hmm. training in teaching. You—you no. you have the academic knowledge, right? But there's none of this, like, okay, so you get up in front of the room and you say the following. No.
0: No No, guidance at all. No
1: no lesson plans, no student teaching, Mm -mm. none of that. And there were four big boys. This is going to sound so familiar to Laura Ingalls Wilder's fans. There were four big boys that were very kind of threatening. They had actually thrown, bodily thrown, the previous teacher out the door and locked the door behind her and taken possession of the school this last term. (laughs) So these are not, like, your friends. These are your big men on campus. Yeah. Yeah. Until one day she went outside and basically whipped their booties at their game, their sport game that they mm-hmm. were playing. And all of a sudden it was like they were her lieutenants and everyone followed and everyone, it was like a big happy family because it was their rule. <laughs> right. And they, they were like her bodyguard slash henchman. Well, because she came to them on, at the, the things that interested
0: them. She showed them that yeah. she was a worthy opponent. Yes. And worthy of their respect.
1: I wouldn't act, she did not act afraid of them, although she was, every day she was afraid of them, but she Mm -hmm. did not act so, and that came in handy later, too. Yeah, that's a good skill to develop for any of us. (laughs) That year, she won the Discipline Award, and she was so angry, because she said there was no discipline in there, and she didn't realize, you know, the surest test of discipline is its absence, kind of, you know what I mean? Like, everyone wanted to be good, right? and she inspired them to do so, as she did over and over in her life. But she got a local rep, and everyone was like, ooh, discipline? We need discipline. Let's hire her. She was in high demand as a teacher. And so from the ages of 17 to 29, she didn't have a season where she wasn't um, teaching school. But she thought that they were hard and tiresome years with no advancement for herself. And she knew she was kind of on a treadmill she didn't want to be on.
0: So after teaching for 10 years in um, Massachusetts, she decided to go on and further her her education. She went to the Liberal Institute in Clinton, New York to do that. And there, she, now remember, she's going to be 10 years older than most of the students there. So she didn't tell them that she'd been a teacher.
1: No, she kept it all to herself because she felt that if they had known she had taught, they'd treat her differently. She didn't even think it was worth going into. She wanted to just move ahead. You know how you get that smugness if you've had practice experience and you go back to theoretical school and in your mind you're like oh yeah that's going to work And everyone else is just nodding. Oh yes, oh, yes, yes. yes, that'll be great. And you're so sarcastic in your head, but she kept yeah. it onside. Right. So that's good. Um and like Hermione Granger in Harry Potter, um, she took every possible class that they offered. Anything mm-hmm. that didn't overlap, she was there. She didn't have a time turner, like no. Hermione Granger, so she, she was kind of exhausted by herself, <laughs> but for the greater good. So her peers, her you know, her friends, um, saw her as and they've even written that she was a merry soul. You know, not so talkative, but very cheerful and merry. But her journals say something completely different. About this time, she wrote, I cannot see much in these days worth living for. There's not a living thing that would be just as well off without me. And, you know, as later events go, that sentence, that's pretty jarring. Yes. Because there's infinite numbers of living things that would be far worse off without her,
0: had she only known. Yeah, exactly. No, I, that's, yeah, that is, gosh, there's a lot of foreshadowing in this woman's life. There is. It's, I mean, it's, she's really taking a lot of things that are happening to her and putting the, put them into her life. That's interesting. Isn't
1: that kind of a know-thyself thing? Maybe she was really serious about that philosophy. Yeah, yeah,
0: maybe. I don't know. And I think it's interesting that she had this one external Clara that people saw, and then her internal turmoil
1: mm-hmm. is,
0: I think that's kind of, I mean, we all have a face we put on. But hers
1: is almost like a separate person.
0: I know. It's like those masks. Dark yeah, light. like
1: comedy tragedy. Yeah. Um, she did have a little romance in her life though. Um, don't think that she was without it. As a matter of fact, she had an admirer that loved her so much that he, when he struck it rich in the gold field, sent her ten thousand dollars as an inducement to love and marriage, mm-hmm. perhaps. Mm-hmm. And she wh- whoa, oh, I didn't know we were that serious. My goodness. Uh thank you, but no. Uh please have this back, please have this back. And he just wrote back, Oh well, keep it. I'm disappointed, but just keep it. It'll I you know, it'll be good for Nice. How rich are you that you can just afford to give some <laughs> ten woman ten thousand dollars? You know that's eighteen hundreds, ten thousand dollars. That's not even our to... So my <laughs> so. goodness, how her life could have turned at that point. I know, really. But so she did have marriage proposals. She throughout did. Her life and... So later, a family member had written a biography about her, and he said that she was always looking for that person that had a stronger personality than mm-hmm. her, so that she could look up to her husband, as was the norm. And she just never found that man. I don't wonder if he existed. I don't know. He'd have to be some kind of spectacular achieving human being there. With a, yeah, with a giving heart. And yeah, I can't imagine. <sighs> she went to visit her friend, Mary Norton, after after school was over for a few weeks. Um, you know, visits didn't, weren't just flying visits, at a town called Bordentown, New Jersey that had been designed by Napoleon's brother, Joseph. Okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> it was very, I mean, it was just, I love it when you do that, when you like tell me something. I was like, oh, really? That's so cool. <laughs> it was just well laid out and- and there were lots of gardens and Uh everything, but then among these beautiful objects and scenery, there were these little roaming street urchins everywhere little boys, dirty little boys um, that had nowhere to be in the middle of the day. And she saw that they needed an education and she believed
0: that free schools should be available to all children. So she took her little vacation and went to work, which would be pretty much how she does everything the rest of her life. Yep.
1: Now She went to the school committee with this proposal and basically said you know she has the $10,000 now from right. Prospector Man. She right. does not need money. Right. She's not going doing this for personal gain. She went to the school committee and explain that and they were so kind to her but in a the most kind way told her she was a ridiculous fool they said these boys belong in a penitentiary (laughs) their parents are just as ignorant as they are they're all belligerent no one in this community is going to trust you you're from outside you will never live down this disgrace when you fail um society of the town will shun you if you associate with these people, and so she listened politely the whole time, just nod and smile, nod and smile. And at the end, she just spoke and said, "I don't need anything from you. I am not here for society. I am here to help the boys. I will do this with you, or without you." She does it with them. They, the school board, basically said, "Well, there's no legal reason we can decline you. We know the outcome." Ahead of time, they said. But we can't decline to let you do this because it's legal that there be public schools. And so, okay, good luck. In
0: quite a short period of time, she establishes a school, gets up
1: to 600 students. She starts out with six. Yeah. And gets up to 600. 600. And she had to get some people to help her, but... I think it's three or four ladies with 600 students. So That's not a good student-teacher teacher ratio. <laughs> it's better than zero to zero, however. That's So true. that's good. It is yeah. better. Or even one to 600. Yeah. Yeah. but So the school board actually built a new school building. They spent about, in today's money, about $132,000 rehabbing a building and, mm-hmm. and building things for her. Although this was completely her thing. Completely her thing. She went away for the
0: summer. And comes back, and the town has hired a man to run the school, to do the job that she had been doing so successfully. And they're going to be really nice to her and let her be his assistant.
1: That is a breathtaking ingratitude. Half the pay. Can you imagine? No. Thanks I a mean, lot. Th-
0: at the time, they viewed the women... A woman doing a man's job was taking away from his family. Was That was the thinking. So if they ha- have a man do the job, then he's providing for his family, whereas Claire is not just herself. It's China's not
1: even a man-woman thing for me. It's like, I made this from scratch, and then somebody else gets to reap all the easy part now that i've struggled up the hill you're gonna give it it, it wasn't even a man slash woman thing for mm-hmm. me it was a more like seriously a stranger is now gonna just take my project and you are gonna allow me to stay that offended me it wasn't a man thing for me but
0: what do you think was for her was it a man thing or was it a
1: no i think was it a was principal a thing. principal thing i don't i just I don't, don't know. know she was pissed um, yeah, so and also the new principal was so petty and, and jealous, and just she couldn't take it, so she left. Yeah, I can't, no imagine, I can't imagine that scenario working out well at all. I do believe that Bordentown School is still there as a memorial to Clara Barton. I think it's a little tiny museum, the original school building. I mean, yeah. obviously, they're not going to hold classes in there anymore. No. So. <laughs> so at 32. There is a fresh start situation happening. Her friend, Fanny Childs, wants to move to Washington, D.C. And so, I don't have anything else to do. Let's go ahead and go there. And we're going to Washington, D.C. So she decided she was going to ask her congressman to help her find a job directly. She would just go and ask, hey, can you find me a job? And he did. The chutzpah of this woman, I mean, you have to be born with it. I don't think that would work today, somehow. Mm -mm. Hey, find me a job around here, would you? You're right. Time seemed simpler yes. or something. So she gets a job at the U.S. Patent Office. She was the very first woman clerk in the patent office to copy secret documents anywhere in a United States government department. There were others after her, but she was the first one to have the eyes only on the secret documents. She was piecework, and so she got 10 cents for 100 words.
0: Wow. I'm trying to figure out how many cents I get per word.
1: <laughs> well, it's 80,000 words for $80, and that's about what she'd hit a month. That's a lot of work. So um so she was so diligent and she could keep his secrets so that was unusual mm-hmm. in any department of the government mm-hmm. that the boss Judge Mason made her his private secretary like a work secretary not a personal secretary mm-hmm. like she no. didn't run errands for him or anything <laughs> could give me a latte no no latte <laughs> my dry cleaning. No dry cleaning. her salary was raised to 1400 a year about 46000 which is Unheard of for most yes. men even. That's, at not, the time. that's pretty substantial. Unheard of. Unheard of. But her co workers resented her all men to the point where they used to spit tobacco on her dress and blow smoke on her face. She said she was terrified every day she worked there, but she kept she kept it to herself. She never let it show because this was a very good job. Plus it was interesting work. She liked it. Her politics were uh, you know, an open secret. Um That's totally fine. But when James Buchanan, the opposition to her views, came in, and this was very common at the time, unlike now where you have permanent workers in a lot of departments that, you know, come what may with the political winds of change, right. the executive part stays the same, you know, in right. a lot of departments because, you know, you don't right. want new people coming in all the time. Having it's to relearn the time. inefficient. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, yeah, it was very common there for this clean sweep situation to happen, and that's what happened to her. She got uh, booted out and went back to Massachusetts for a month uh, you know, oh, what to do, what to do, what to do. She took painting lessons. You know, maybe I'll move to the south and teach painting. She is an adventurous. She's she's kind of floundering. It's like, what am I gonna do yeah. when I grow up? She wrote Sam Houston, you know, famous frontier hero, yes. asking him for a job. That cracks. <sighs> me up so a month went by and she was asked to come back everything has fallen apart without you please come back is that the fantasy of everybody leaves a job job.
0: this place couldn't run without me it couldn't
1: (laughs) they're they're just like politics aside whatever you got to come back things are falling apart around here so that's excellent great let's go back to washington yeah and so clara barton went as often as she could and listened to the debates There was, there was, you could hear the distant thumping here of war drums. There were tensions Mm -hmm. gathering, tensions gathering. Um, Clara Barton actually had a viewpoint that she was not for freeing the slaves in one fell swoop. She thought it would be bad for everybody. She thought there'd be instability. She thought, mm-hmm. let's just, like, can we gradually, along with education, can we uh, just blah, 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 you know, gradually. Work towards that is a goal. It was her point. Um, so that was her viewpoint. She did believe they should be freed, but right. perhaps not in one, like, stroke of the pen.
0: Right. And she's working in an office where not everybody believes as she does, and there is a lot of tensions uh, because of that.
1: Lincoln gets in. 1860 election. Well, now... <laughs> That's awesome, I guess. He was elected um, in November, but by December, South Carolina has left the Union. And they also, not only did they leave, they claimed the right to keep Fort Sumter and everything in it, and they demanded that the United States troops leave, that were stationed there. They already called them United States troops, because they, as far as they were concerned, were no longer part of the United States. Get your people out of here. <laughs> and six other states followed. Bing, 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 bing. So by the time Lincoln took office... There was already a president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, so he took office over half of the country, according you know, theoretically. Yeah. So um Clara Barton was in the audience for his inaugural. Isn't that interesting? That is very interesting. She was surprised at the lack of soldiers everywhere, but little did she know (laughs) that right in front of her, under Abraham Lincoln, up on his platform, there were fifty armed men. (laughs) She didn't know that part. Just in case, because the climate in the country is just a little turbulent right now. So April 14th, 1861, what happens? The fall of the Fort Sumter. Lincoln ordered 75,000 men to put down this rebellion. It is on. So this (laughs) is the catalyst for her greatness, really. This event right here. Yes. It actually started immediately four days later you know Washington DC is not the most heavily guarded place Mm-mm. and Washington DC is not the most naturally heavily guarded place like there's no it's not in a valley it's not on a mountaintop we don't have a fort around it it's just not a very secure place so all these um, troops are you know on their way to defend it basically should it ever come under attack and sure enough a whole company of them were attacked on the way there, in Baltimore. And some were from Clara Barton's town. And they recognized her. Some were her former students. All the wounded were brought in. They were actually billeted in the U.S. Senate chamber, which is interesting. They turned that into soldier housing. So they're all there, and... You know, they're so happy to see her. They're all scared. They're away from home, and they see a familiar face, a lot of them, and they had one copy of the paper, and they wanted her to read it to them. Now, this person, with a horror of public speaking, was basically handed hand over hand up to the vice president's chair, uh-huh. where she sat over all yes. of them and read them the paper, not once, but twice over. And she shook the whole time. She was so afraid to be up there speaking in public. But she did well, it. sure. Well, she's shocked at the lack of supplies these boys have. Mm -hmm. They don't have anything. And so she took it on herself to send a notice to every paper she could think of that basically said, I'll receive and distribute any goods, supplies, or money that you send to me. And then this right here is the key of her whole war effort right here. So far as our poor efforts can reach, they shall never lack a kindly hand or a sister's sympathy if they come. That was her big mission statement for the war. That's that's a pretty awesome mission statement. Yeah. Could probably even be a mission statement for her life. Yes. So the ladies of the country, among others, rallied. Like, no tomorrow. Canned fruit arrived. They made warm jackets. They Mm -hmm. knitted scarves. Clara Barton could not knit the (laughs) scarves. But But she could store them. She could organize them and get them to where they needed to go. So many things came. You know, she expected some boxes, which would arrive in her house, and she would distribute them. Oh, no, no. No. She had to hire a warehouse. Yes. And meanwhile, here's the government counter-propagandizing The army is well supplied. We need no nurses. We are fine. Send nothing. Yeah. And And she's networking going, we need stuff now. Your boys need stuff now. And she said, our army cannot afford that our ladies lay down their needles and fold their hands. It irritated her so badly. The Battle of Bull Run has started to happen. These are just Mm -hmm. blood. The Civil War is nothing but gore, 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 gore. The whole way through. There is nothing glamorous. I'm talking, okay, Scarlet O'Hara is one thing with the portiers, but the reality of the situation is, this is not a pretty place. No. And her traveling to all the battlefields is like a history of the war. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was at all the biggies. So, um, she was irritated that ladies would come in their carriages to watch the battle, or to see the encampments, and drive away, when her philosophy is like, get your butt down here, and bathe foreheads, because that is what they need. They do mm-hmm. not need people approving of the situation. It's the, not a spectator sport. No. At all. And the more she saw of war, the more she realized, okay, the closer to the front a soldier was when something bad happened to him, the least chance he had, because by the time he got treated, he had been sick for way too long. They brought him right. all the way back on trains and, to get, and yes, wagons, Right,
0: to get them back is, was an ordeal in itself.
1: Yeah, and so she wanted to go help at the front which no nice Victorian woman would do.
0: No, not at all. But she was pretty much bucking convention
1: anyway. So. Well, yeah, camp followers, you know, any woman that's with an army at the front is usually yes. a um, a lady yes. of negotiable affection, shall we say? Yes, that's a fine way to say it. The army even forbade her from going. Yes. And she struggled for passes, struggled for passes, and struggled for passes. She got word her father was dying, mm-hmm. went back home, and her father steeled her resolve. And he said, You should go. I know soldiers. I know them. And they will respect you. They will. And they will respect your errand. And I wish that you would go.
0: What else does she need? That's it. So he does
1: die. He does die. And her mother had actually died while she was at college. So right. she, you know, she's without parents now. But she badgered people and bullied people and got all the passes she would need to go to the front through all the checkpoints. And three brave ladies went with her as her workers, and wagon loads full of supplies, and they went to the front, and she said of them that they were a little band of almost empty-handed workers in the Virginia wilderness. There were 3,000 soldiers right then. Four women and some wagons. They had very, very minimal dishes. They had minimal supplies, mm-hmm. even to cook things. But as they served out the you know all the preserved fruits and everything to these men, This tears, she just, the tears were running down their cheeks, tears of gratitude. And they, um, she said that they blessed God and the ladies equally. It was, they were so thankful for this fruit and for a kind face Signs of normalcy in a,
0: in a hellacious situation. Uh, oh, yeah. And she, I mean, like I said before, she is following these
1: battles. Well, and you know, her critics, cause there were critics at the beginning that said, these positions you occupy are rough and they're unseemly for a woman. And she would answer tartly, these positions I occupy are rough and unseemly for a man. <laughs> Take it out of. There's no gender here. Uh, Let's just do it. And then people would send money, which was like fine enough. But she said that the bread that would fit on this gold coin is worth more than the gold coin to me. We Give need, me stuff. Yeah, I money's great, but I need things. Yeah, she, you know, she worked tirelessly. She and her crew, and she always would comfort people and lay a hand on the forehead. Uh, you know, just whatever she could. And she do. was assisting the surgeons in in some regards, helping as they mm-hmm. stitched, helping with amputations,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Civil War amputations. You know, I have to post a picture. When I was at the Civil War Museum on Mm -hmm. my vacation, the medical kits, the most prominent thing in every medical kit was a bone saw. And if you've never seen a bone saw, I don't know. Maybe I should put a warning label on the top of it before you see the (laughs) picture. If you could imagine, "Mm, it's not good. No, it's not. So she treated, here's the thing, she treated Union soldiers and Confederate soldiers both. They are both women's sons, she said. They're Mm -hmm. both, you know, they're people. Yeah, they need help. I'm not
0: going to walk past one. Just because I don't believe in his politics, yeah.
1: Overall, the tales of bravery and daring and evading capture and defying prohibitions she, she could get to her boys, as she called it. And seriously, she would show up. She got this reputation. Of course she was not everywhere. No. But you know, the rumor is the best media, I think. <laughs> there were tales, true tales, but they became legend surgeons were down to using leaves for bandages here she comes with a thing full of bandages you know um surgeons were trying to do surgery by this last little inch of candle nub, and she arrives with lanterns true yes but it just became she was everywhere and they began to call her the angel of the battlefield right
0: and that's where that that's where that comes from
1: yeah her fame was definitely growing oh
0: absolutely well and she's I mean, I don't think she's doing it to earn fame, but. No. But, uh.
1: But, you know. deserved. There's a story that's so sad. I'm not even sure I can get through this without crying. I actually was trying to do research in a public place when I read this, and I was like, oops, snapped the book shut. Too sad. Okay. One day, she was trying to snatch what was, seriously, an hour of sleep in a matter of four days. Everyone had sent her away to lay down. She had laid down. She had fallen asleep. The surgeons came to her and said, I'm so sorry to wake you up. I need you. Only you can do this. There is a boy. He is dying. He's not going to make it. He's been calling for his sister, Mary. And our presence seems to disturb him. It is very dark. Can you please go? And she knew that she had to go. And so she went and she held him and he began to cry and say, oh, Mary, oh, Mary, I'm so glad that you're here. I can now die. I'm so glad to see you. And he was so sad and he felt so, like, relieved to see his sister. Sister. Yeah. And um and for just uh for just one moment she was his salvation kind of. It was so sad. And that's just, just one story out of, of so many. This, well, I know I'm so sad. Okay. Well, and the next morning, this is interesting. The next morning it gets a little better although it doesn't have a happy ending. The yeah. next morning the sun came up and he had regained a little bit of strength and consciousness or strength or whatever and he saw he said I knew it couldn't be Mary. Somewhere in my heart I knew. But what's your name and will you spell it for me i have a piece of paper in my pocket he said it's a letter to my mother will you write your name on the back of it well, she didn't have a pen so she couldn't write her name so he memorized her name and then he asked her please please i am an only son i know i am not gonna make it and she's like oh now and he goes no i know i'm not gonna make it make sure they put me on the train they know i'm dying they're gonna leave me here if i am left here my mother will never see me again make sure they put me on the train because they won't throw me off the train, and I'll make it back home. And that's what they did. And and there was a, she actually ran into the doctors and asked about that man. And he had lived for two days, and he had seen his sister
0: Oh before
1: he died. Aww. Yeah, is it sad? Are you crying now? Because it's like. Not as much as you are, but yes. And just think about how many of those stories there were. Like, how yeah. many men so far from home, and she was the, the only, only link. The only thing that the saved the reason. only soft thing. Yeah. I seriously think she saw each and every one of these boys as an individual, and uh-huh. I do not know how she does it. AR doctors probably develop some kind of shell. I don't think she ever developed a shell. I just don't know how she could do it. How her heart could take that. She never mentions, especially on the battlefield, like she never mentions breaking down and weeping on the battlefield. Um, just practicality, really. So let's take a little break. Haha, <laughs> on that happy note. I know. Sorry about that. Okay. Let's take a little break, and when we come back, We will talk about the end of the Civil War and her occupations afterward. So, as Susan said before, the history of clara barton's movements are the history of the civil war and we can't possibly go into all the battles where she was in attendance it's just not possible in a short or long podcast really but um let's just say after antietam and the battle of fredericksburg some of the most bloody brutal battles of the war some of her clothes got shot off she was crossing a bridge and her escort got shot she used to wring blood out of the hems of her dresses this is how bad those battles were. She returned to Washington and got off her train, and she was, and I quote, shoeless, gloveless, ragged, bloodstained, full of desolation and pity and sympathy and weariness. And people would turn to look at her on the street as she passed on her way. So she made it to her house, and she shut the door behind her. And as usual, as common, there were packing cases on the floor for her, um, you know, that had come while she was gone. But she sat on one of them and cried All the tears she had saved up during all this time, as if her heart would break. She lost it completely, in complete privacy, but really poured out all the sobbing she never got to do before, indulged in it, in fact. When she was finally calm, calming herself down, a very calming thing to do would be to open the boxes and sort things. That would clear her mind, that would get her back to herself. She opened the box, and instead of being full of soldier supplies, there were dresses, skirts, Boots, bonnets, warm shawls, everything for her, letters for her, reaffirming her good work, that people had thought of her. Among all these things, she was so amazed, like their brothers, their sons are off at war. And in all of that going on in these ladies' lives, they took the time to think of her and to make her life a little easier. That's beautiful. So during the last years of the war, in the last two years, she was officially recognized at last, rather than the, eh, you know, it was still a volunteer position, largely. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but at least she got a title. Angel of the Battlefield isn't a title. That no. Is, I think it's a better she, title. You know,
0: Lincoln gives her a really cool title, and that's Director of All U.S. Army Nurses.
1: That is true. And she had a boss named General Benjamin Butler. Now, he was a vain sort of general and kind of a... Jerkhead, head is that the word you're looking for <laughs> yes but even he told everyone who worked under him carry out any order she gives you she outranks me ha love <laughs> her uh lee on april 9th surrendered the army of northern virginia at appomattox and there's some skirmishes left and there's mm-hmm. some cleaning up of situations left but functionally the war is over at that point right. we're excited yay it's like dancing in the streets there's hoorays there's probably drinking A little bit. I would imagine. But all too quickly, excitement turns to horror as days later, five days later, President Lincoln goes to the theater. That's really all we need to say. If you don't know what happens there. So a definite chapter had closed, but Lincoln had left a letter assigning her, Miss Clara Barton, um, as the contact to search for missing prisoners of war. And missing soldiers. Right.
0: She'd been keeping lists on the battlefield, of, you know, when she saw soldiers that were dying. She got their names, and she'd been trying to get information. And this letter from Lincoln was posted and printed in newspapers saying,
1: basically, any questions you have, send them to Clara. Ultimately, that led to 105,000 letters corresponding with distraught relatives. She had to hire some assistants mm-hmm. just to deal with the correspondence. At this point,
0: she's setting up the Bureau of Records or the Office of Correspondence. Um, her title is, I love this title, it's so descriptive of what what she did, General Correspondent for the Friends of Paroled Prisoners. Because now all the prisoners of war in the southern prisons are being let go, and they're trying to get back to their families. Some of them didn't make it out. There's lots of information that needs to get come together, and Clara's office is doing that.
1: She started in Andersonville, which was the site of a brutal, infamous Confederate prisoner of war camp, and she set up a national cemetery there, and ultimately, with the help, actually, of a man who kept a list on the DL that could have gotten him shot, Mm -hmm. um, a a prisoner named Dorrance Atwater. But anyway, he had a list of where everybody was, and who's who, and everything. Ultimately identified 12,920 men at that cemetery.
0: That's, she's, she's marking their graves. I mean, you know, th- that's just a foot, you know, and that's a line in, in, in history. She set up Andersonville Cemetery and marked their graves. Can you imagine what that meant on a day to, to mark a grave to
1: find out who was buried in it and mark it? Yeah. And yeah, it was all numbers. Everybody just had a number. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was number 14 or whatever. And then with the help of this man who kind of risked his life to keep records, if you think about that, that's she was able to really pull that off. And um, she she started to give lectures to raise money for this project and her records project. And basically returning soldiers of all stripes. She knew she needed more money for any humanitarian work she was about to attend. She gave 300 lectures in one year alone. And think about how stressful that is for someone that cannot speak in front of people. Talking about
0: stepping outside of your comfort zone.
1: Yeah, it was a sacrifice for her, but she
0: overcame her shyness. Well, she was actually the first woman to appear before Congress. I mean, that's kind of a pretty awesome, fear-inducing, even in this day and age, (laughs)
1: Yeah, I couldn't do it, and I have a, you know. And she
0: asked, and she received money from that. I mean,
1: she was a networker, like, before networking was cool. That's true. That is true. And you know who sought to get her on their side? The early feminists, Susan Mm -hmm. B. Anthony in particular, looked around at Clara's audiences There were well over half men in every... uh, That's unheard of for a female speaker. Female speakers were for the ladies. Right. But no, no, no. Everybody flocked to see Clara Barton. And Susan B. Anthony and the feminists wanted Clara Barton to kind of harness that power for feminism. Now, Clara Barton was not really that girl. Although she did... She believed in it. She She believed in their cause. Yeah, and she networked with them on some things that she felt were important. But she was never really a a fundamental member of the feminist movement, much to their sadness. Now, until one day, when there was a poster advertising her lecture that said, Miss Clara Barton speaks with patriotic elegance, but don't worry. Not one of those kind of ladies, like Susan B. Anthony. She's not that kind of a woman. And Clara Barton took a miss at that. She took great a miss at that. So she was so angry, her blood boiled. And she did her regular thing. She did her regular speech that she normally does until everyone was cheering. Everyone was cheering. And then she read them the riot act, ending with three cheers for Susan B. Anthony. And I will put the whole text of that little PS of her Uh speech in a special feature because it is like basically like, how dare you? We are the ones that tend... We are your mothers. We are your sisters. We are an integral part of your life. Blah, 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 blah. I'll put the whole thing, but seriously, at the end, three cheers for Susan B. Anthony and all the windows shook with the cheering. (sighs) So you know what? If I want to harness my power for this lady, I will and you can't do anything about it. So good for her, because yeah. she stood up when she needed to stand up. She didn't feel like, you know... She didn't feel that it was necessary for
0: her to align herself with them. Well, she just
1: she didn't necessarily work for that cause in itself, but she was offended at at people who didn't respect the work those right. ladies were doing. Yeah, she had her own mission. She had her own things to do, yeah. At 47, her health just collapsed. <laughs> and they called it nervous prostration, so I would think so. Yeah, yeah. We may call it PTSD in these days. Perhaps. Well, I should think so. So what does she do? She goes to Europe to rest. Well, and they said, you cannot possibly rest here. People will write you letters. People will knock on your door. You need to go away.
0: So she takes her sister and she goes to Europe.
1: And another great chapter in her life began she went to geneva because her, her voice had gone and geneva was thought good for throats isn't that funny like you would go different geographies mm-hmm. to cure different diseases sure. okay so geneva was thought to be good for the throat so we're in geneva and a delegation came to call the international convention of geneva also known as the red cross i'm um, at this point many countries not the u.s i didn't
0: see a need for it um had signed the Geneva Convention, basically saying that how soldiers were to be treated in war.
1: And they also said in this, some of the key provisions were hospitals are neutral. Medical workers and soldiers too weak to fight are neutral. Supplies for the sick and wounded are off limits. You cannot seize them for any reason. Right. And, it, you know, there were a lot of provisions like that, like prisoner, how prisoners of war were to be treated, etc. It was a very big deal, that U.S., the United States, had not ratified it. Why had they not ratified it? They asked her and like, I said, I have no idea because this is basically
0: what I think I've been doing. I mean, I'm do- I've been doing during the Civil War
1: what these people are doing to the Red Cross. Now, here's interesting about the Red Cross. They took for their flag, the flag of Switzerland, but re- color reversed. So if you think mm-hmm. about Switzerland, it's a red flag with the white cross right. on it. Isn't that interesting? It is. And very now it's a white flag with the red cross. So right about now, the Franco-Prussian War began. This is the same war that chased the buccaneers <laughs> to London, by the way. My people. Just, I know, oh, I was just gonna say that. You're people, Beckett. All up in people's faces. So she went to see this war. This is a functioning Red Cross right. that's going on now, um, with the Geneva Convention in place. Now she's relatively fresh from the Civil War. She went to see and was astonished to see that not a man can lie uncared for or unfed. She thought back, you know, to some of those worst battlefields she'd been in with fro- soldiers that had been frozen to the ground, no supplies, prisoners starving, and this is what she saw order. There was cleanliness. There were supplies, plenty of supplies, mm-hmm. she said. Nurses had been trained. There was respect given to the hospital personnel rather than shooting their clothes off. Okay. Like it just happened to her. And she vowed to make this happen in the United States. She vowed.
0: How could she not? Yes. I mean, that was her. Th- that was what she's been doing. But you know, and it was organized. Yeah, it wasn't just it. her and you know a few of her people working together and bringing things around. It was a organized effort, relatively calm. Yes. In a war.
1: Yeah. But the United States had this long-standing policy. I'm talking George Washington long Mm -hmm. of not making treaties with foreign powers. They just, it's not a good plan. We know how it used to go back in the day with all the treaties and backbiting. And, you know, you hit my friend, I'll hit you. They just don't make treaties. And so that's why they hadn't ratified it. Basically. Yeah. She is there for four years and she does Mm -hmm. things. Um, I'll just have to add one thing she did do that's kind of surprising that's out of her wheelhouse again. Uh-huh. But she's always going, she's always going out there. Yeah. The city of Strasbourg had been bombarded during the war and rather than go in with money and supplies, she looked around, she stood there in the middle and she said, what these people need is self-respect. And so rather than give them food, she started all these workhouses. And so women would make warm clothes that she designed herself, that she cut out the first patterns of herself and sewed herself the prototypes and had all these women learn how to make clothes and would give them or sell them, you know, to poorer people or the citizens. (laughs) So she's also a fashion designer. about that? Although she laughed, she would write to her friend who lived in France, "Uh, you may mock these clothes, but they are strong and warm and handsome. (laughs) They don't have as many frills as your dresses, but...
0: Can you imagine this is a challenge on Project Runway? (laughs) Go make battlefield garments. I made this belt out of shell casings. (laughs) Oh, my gosh.
1: So she did not rest in Europe, did she? This is her vacation. This is her vacation. Let's go to war. Let's pick up a lifelong mission. So she got got her nervous prostration again, you know. Okay, this time for six years. Finally, okay, we're resting. But then at long last, she tells the International Red Cross... Okay, I am ready. And she began the letter-writing campaign. She's 56 years old. She made a pamphlet called What the Red Cross Is and explained what they do on the battlefield, (laughs) but she added a significant change to something that was the European Red Cross didn't have, which was that peacetime calamities were in there. Right. And the European Red Cross didn't have that. No, and, I mean, think about our
0: Red Cross now. Mm -hmm. She's been formulating her plan, and now she's going to put it into action,
1: really. Yeah, and by the time she was 61, it took five years, Mm -hmm. but America ratified the Geneva Convention at last.
0: President Chester Arthur signed it.
1: Yes. Yes. And almost immediately, they were put to the test. There were forest fires in Michigan. There were. There followed a whole string of natural disasters. Quickly floods in Ohio and off the Mississippi. There were tornadoes. The 1886 Charleston earthquake. Mm -hmm. There's an East Coast earthquake of days gone by. The um, famous Johnstown flood of 1889, which I think we should put in a special feature because there's a lot of intricacy to that one. Uh, It's the worst dam break incident in history, really. Um, and then she also helped with some more European issues, but from the home front, there was a big famine in Russia. Mm-hmm. And the government said, Russia, no, we're not sending help. No. And so she did an end run basically around her. What? What? Really? I did it my <laughs> way. Um, and basically the state of Iowa sent 225 carloads. This is railroad car. It's railroad loads, car. It's a train car. Right. Uh, of corn and flour. And basically that. One load fed 700,000 people for a month. So, I mean, kept them out of death. Right. I mean, they're not like making birthday cakes. So no. <laughs> happy. But the Armenian massacre in Turkey, she was actually allowed to come in and help orphans and the starving, and she hired brigand chiefs as her bodyguards, which is interesting. She's got such an adventurous she situation. Does. She was always in danger. In this situation in Turkey, she was always in danger and she was 74 years old. She's not a very big woman to begin with and Mm-mm. she's getting older. She's also
0: she's dyeing her hair and she's lying about her age so the people don't go, "Oh, an old a woman of your age shouldn't be in this situation." She's she's like, "I'm just going to do it."
1: I know. So she started orphanages and mm-hmm. um, you know, really left her mark on On that area too, there was a crisis in Cuba when she was seventy-seven. Literally, she was already there, which is interesting because Cuba was fighting for independence from Spain. So, what are the chances that of all the people that are going to be there, Clara Barton's sitting there and she hears the main blow up the ship that started Mm -hmm. the Spanish American War? She literally hears it. I just thought, of course she does. (laughs) she's following the battles. It's like. (laughs) <laughs>
0: Almost like if she goes to the, some place, there will be some kind of I know, end. I'm like, are you this <laughs> Do you um, really want to come
1: visit me? I don't think so. <laughs> it's you like kind of causing these battles. So she did meet Teddy Roosevelt of the Rough Raiders. Family lore says that my great-grandpa was with him. I always look, there's this one picture I should post that I always think that this one guy could be my great-grandpa. Oh, really? But there's, that. there's probably no way to find out. No. But... I always think, because he looks so much like my grandpa, I'm always like, hmm, is that the guy? So, family lore says, he's there. And Teddy Roosevelt once came out of the um, jungle, all dirty, and he said, my men, my men are starving and they need this food. Can I buy it from the Red Cross? I've got personal money right now. And she said, you cannot buy these supplies. This is for the Red Cross. And he, of course, immediately started freaking out! Because that's what he does. Yeah. I kind of like Teddy Roosevelt, even though he's kind of horrible too, but, um, he starts freaking out! And he's like, my man need this? my may need this? How am I going to get blah, 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 And she goes, you just have to ask for it. <laughs> her response to people blustering at her is to get calmer. Which yeah. Is, which which is really it. irritates people who are blustering. Yeah, and I think it works out great. Oh, yeah. So she gave him everything <laughs> that, he needed. that he needed. And he yep. put it in a big sacks over his back, back into the jungle. Goodbye. Here she is again making gruel over a campfire. And she said, I cannot tell you how far back this takes me back in time. I never thought I'd be doing this again. <laughs> Ever. Well, she's in her 70s! In her 70s! I just can't even get over that. Yeah, she's so vigorous. But you know what? There were cracks. There were cracks in her organization, Yes. and they really kind of got ammunition against her during this Spanish-American war situation in Cuba. There was a lady named Mabel Boardman that led an opposition to her methods, and she basically said, well, she's the leader. She ought to have directed this from the United States. What is she doing standing there making a over a campfire? That's ridiculous. So many people could have been helped. Delegate. This this country failed. She's totally inadequate. She has no interest in organizing. Okay, true, but I think she has a lack of interest in bureaucracy. She wants to get it done. She's, she's, that's... Yeah. You know, to put all this on her like she should have gone against her nature and stayed back away somewhere, it's just not her. You guys are the ones that put on her this whole, like, big mantle of on high. She's doing the exact same thing she always did, is what I'm saying.
0: No, I totally understand, and I totally agree with you. Now, I kind of do see the other side, too. Like, we could have helped more people. If
1: you told them how you did it. And that's <laughs> other true. people to be the gruel makers. You know, that is true, too. But, you know, Congress right after this incorporated the Red Cross and they started questioning her methods and micromanaging and demanding accounts. This is just not what she Yeah, she, she wasn't
0: really. She was brought into question for her financial records. And she, she admitted that she had a tendency to just kind of shove things in a box just like she did in a battlefield and sorted it out later. And mm-hmm. it was not her strong suit and she just didn't do it. So there had been, I think there had been some kind of, uh, inner conflicts within the organization since its inception, you know, because she was, this is the way it's going to be done Mm -hmm. and rather controlling, um, other people said there's other ways to do things.
1: Let's try,
0: you know, so. But
1: you know, she she resigned infuriated at 83, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) but you know what this sounds like to me. Remember that school back in Bordentown? Yeah. Seriously. Like she made it from scratch. Yeah. And then once it's big. And it's good. Yes. They just take it away, and they just give it to somebody. You know, come on, let me stay. I'm... Well, it just it just makes me sick that they they took it away from they, her again. Yeah. I do understand their reasonings because mm-hmm. efficiency is you know desirable. Yeah and, yeah, and we can't always do it one way. Yeah, but still, that does like having known her past. That seems like a big slap in the
0: face. Yeah, you're I, right. I, I that does liken right back to Town.
1: So let's take a little break. So she started yet another huge project, because we, we can't sit around. No. We can't sit around. She started the National First Aid Association and made up the first first aid kits. And she trained people in first aid and gave more lectures. I mean, you and I both have a first aid kit in our bathroom cabinets. Yes. Maybe even in our car doors, the little flatty ones. Yes. So Clara Barton has impacted every one of our lives. This is her contribution yes, too. Yes, that's, that's amazing. It's an
0: important contribution. At this point, she's retired and living in Glen Echo, Maryland. Um, she's writing. She's still still kind of giving speeches, and but her health is starting to fail.
1: But she took up painting and typewriting and tree grafting. <laughs> so I guess she's trying to improve the quality of her fruits at eighty-nine. Taking up astrology and palm reading and fortune telling. And what did you say about her lifeline? Oh, she said that her lifeline was never-ending. It's just kind of true if you think about reputation and impact. I would
0: agree with that. Yeah. I mean, not that I'm going to want to put a whole lot of validity into palm reading. Don't write me letters,
1: please. But, um... Well, I don't know. My palm seems to think I'm going to have two kids, which is news to me.
0: My palm doesn't say anything. (laughs) I don't know what it says.
1: Well, I don't know. I don't want to know where my lifeline is, but I, you know, maybe we should post that too. A picture of the oh, palm. The,
0: and the phrenologist lumps and the palm reading palms. Ay.
1: It's also interesting. Right, the letters we're going to get. You oh. know what I think is, I think if Clara Barton had lived today, yes. she would have a podcast of some kind or a network like Oprah. Yeah. Now, she did have a young lady that was um, with her constantly. Named Antoinette Margot. Um, Really, her sole companion for a long period of time, I think she was probably very lonely. Because in one of her journals, she had written, Well, there are worse things than loneliness. Which says to me that that was, she's pretty lonely. Trying to make
0: herself feel better. Yeah, Yeah. I think so
1: too. So her strength began to fail her. Began to fail her (laughs) when she was 90. Bless her. So she had unspecified weaknesses and pain. She was kind of generally going downhill a little bit. Mm-hmm. Things were starting to, to break down, and um, she got a cold. And
0: it turned into double pneumonia, Yeah, and that's what actually was the end of her.
1: Now, the, for the two days before she died, she was seriously way back in the Civil War. She was talking about all her experiences there for two whole days. Her last words were, let me go let me go. And she died on April 12th, 1912. And she's buried under a gravestone that's shaped like a red cross in North Oxford, Massachusetts. No surprise there. Her last oh. words, um, there's a theory that her last words are from this poem that they found in her scrapbook later. I don't know who wrote the poem. I don't think that was included in the scrapbook. It says, Loose me, loose me, and let me go, the old man faintly cried. His face was pale, but all aglow, for Christ was seen by his side. Loose me, he cried, and let me go. So they wondered if that was where words. those last what she was words referencing? came from.
0: Maybe. That's the thing about last words, it's all. <laughs> Rosebud. Yeah. <laughs>
1: We don't know. We don't really know what they mean. So what does she leave behind? She leaves behind the Red Cross. They do 400 things a year, usually, the Red Cross. 400 emergencies a year rely on the Red Cross. Think about if it didn't exist. Think about if Claire Barton had it brought it over. We will, of course, link you up to the American Red Cross
0: site. Some of my money does go to the American Red Cross, and maybe some of yours can
1: as well. First aid kits are hers. And then also nurse respectability. Now, it's not just her. There are, you know, Dorothea Dix, Florence Nightingale, and many others. But these women, these pioneering women Mm -hmm. of the nursing industry, you know, made it respectable for women to do this profession. So, Definitely, that's something we can all benefit from. Yeah, that's a really good legacy.
0: Now, um, linking you up to sites. Yes, you know, I am a virtual tour aficionado. <laughs> um, the Clara Barton Historic Site in Glen Echo, Maryland, does have a um, the National Park Service does have a website for her, and there are virtual tours and all kinds of information about um, that site, um, and we, of course, will link you up. You can also visit the Clara Barton Birthplace Museum, which is in North Oxford. Massachusetts I let's go Uh, Okay,
1: (laughs) back to the old home ground that's right I know that we keep going back there but um yeah that would be good let's do that now as to books there is one that was written by her cousin William E. Barton called The Life of Clara Barton it's a little bit you know romantically about his relative but it's good to read (laughs) Clara Barton, The Story of My Childhood, written by another other than Clara Barton, um, is actually available for free on iTunes. It's just five short little podcasts read by a woman with a very pleasant voice. Mm-hmm. And you can download it and listen to it. And it's, you know, basically everyone had vouchered her to tell the story of her childhood. So she finally did. Yeah. And you may as well just listen to it while you're Running. That would be good. Okay. It's there, or you can obviously get it from the library. And then there's another book that's very good, um, Illustrious Americans, Clara Barton by Marshall Fishwick. Um, and this one has a great section in the back. It's almost like two books in one. It's, um, you know, a basic story, encyclopedia style, lots of photos, mm-hmm. paintings, etc. And then in the back, it's on, you know, brown paper. It's all in her own words, like things from her journals and primary sources and everything. Yeah, that was a cool book. So that's interesting. Um, There are some others, you know, Angel of the Battlefield by Ishmael Ross. I'll just put the... I'll put all the books that we recommend. There's a lot for this one. Now, in this particular podcast,
0: um, a lot of you had suggested that we, we sit down and discuss her, but one little girl in particular kind of tugged at our heart and she's six years old. And so I thought I would take a look at Clara Barton's life through children's books in addition to some grown up material. So, um, I will, there's a couple that I found. That basically, if the information is very similar in all of them, but some of them are just a little bit more interesting. So we'll, we will link you up to those as well.
1: Yeah, and now that you say that, Mm -hmm. we should say thank you to Ivy, who is six. Hope you enjoyed it. So, in closing, let me read from the New York Sun, published right after she had died. Clara Barton was more than brave. She devoted her life to humanity. She was one of the most useful of women, self-sacrificing, generous to a fault. Is it not the finest glory that when the American Red Cross is mentioned, the name of Clara Barton descends like a benediction? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.
0: To learn more about the life of Clara Barton, please visit thehistorychicks.com and take a look at all the media and links that we talked about in this episode. If you liked what you heard, would you please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast player you use. You can visit me over on Twitter at History Chicks with an X. You can visit with Beckett on Instagram. You can visit with both of us either on our public Facebook page or in the History Chicks podcast lounge. It's our private group and the community there is amazing. Hi, guys.
1: The music in our podcast comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mebio.com.
0: It is on like Donkey Kong. I didn't. (laughs) I heard
1: you start to say. I
0: know. I didn't. (laughs) (laughs)